You remember the old westerns? Those really old ones? There were always the good guys. They wore the white hats. And then there were the bad guys in black hats. There was often a guy in a gray hat. And it was hard to tell which way he would go. Usually if he started off bad, he ended up good. But the reverse was often true as well. But then, you know, you couldn't always tell. The bad guys, though, they were always taking advantage of the town folk. And usually the school marm, <laughs> they called her ma'am, but school marm was her title. And I never, I never understood that. <laughs> and often the female lead was the local widow. Sometimes the bad guys were outright mean to everyone. Well, except for the female lead. They always pretended to be nice to her. And she always thought that deep down they are good. But we all knew they weren't. Usually they tricked people into thinking they were being good while they were actually planning to cheat them all. So the good guy or guys would come in and expose the bad guy for who he was. Then there would be a fight for truth and justice and the American way. After a great struggle, the good guys would defeat the bad guys and the hero would set everything straight and marry the school marm or widow, whichever part they had. Sometimes it would make her both the school teacher and the widow. But then they needed an even bigger fight, so usually they just settled for one of the two roles. Okay, you're thinking, hey, isn't this guy supposed to be talking about Acts 13? <laughs> yes, so hold on, and you'll see this plot played out right before your eyes, but without the school teacher or widow. Okay, there's no women at all in this story. This is a manly movie, or story. <clears throat> anyway, we'll start with an introduction to the guys in the white hats. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Prophets and teachers. Does it mean both, or does it mean some of each? Hmm. If both, prophets are supposed to be rare, but the church in Antioch has five of them that teach there. We've talked about the importance of Antioch last time, so we'll just leave that there. The prophet and teacher is that, the first one is that great leader sent from Jerusalem that everyone loves so much. The last is that brilliant man that Barnabas brought in because of his great teaching ability. The other three are a curiosity. Simeon is a Jewish name, but he has a Roman nickname, Niger. Niger means dark, so many have concluded that this guy might be a black African proselyte. But we don't know. <laughs> Lucius is from North Africa, Cyrene, so he would likely be Caucasian. He does have a Roman name, though. And Manian is most fascinating. Apparently, he grew up with the Herod that, when he was an adult, killed John the Baptist and behaved shamefully at Jesus' trial. It's amazing, isn't it? One of the two becomes a great leader for Jesus Christ, while the other mocked him. Maybe Luke is trying to give us a foretaste of the battle between good and evil. So we've got a black Jewish convert, a Caucasian from North Africa, another who grew up in a Roman palace with a major bad guy, an ex-Jewish zealot in Saul, and a super great guy in Barnabas. <laughs> what an amazing variety of guys all working together in one church for the cause of Christ. And hey, 
sounds like our church. I love it. Now usually, in a Western, the story starts with the good guys peacefully doing good things. Just their regular day-to-day stuff that they do, but with a hint that something is not quite right. And sure enough, this is what we find with our heroes. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They were fasting. Why does a person fast? Because it's something very important that they are praying to God about, seeking his will on. Somehow these guys knew that they had to make a change. They just didn't know what. Here's another Western movie thing. It's always the best guys who end up in the fight. And so it is here. Now I know the other three were well trained and were ready to be the pastors in this church. But still, it must have been hard to send out your very best. But Barnabas and Saul had a special work to do for the Lord. By the way, you next run into this word work in 1426, the end of Paul's first missionary journey. Luke is careful to help his readers keep track of the story. What's that word on either end of it? Anyway, they are set apart. They have a special calling. Paul clearly recognized his calling in his first letter. He said, The Holy Spirit had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. He starts his great letter to the church at Rome with this introduction. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Some people have a calling that is so clear that you can't miss it. But we all have a calling. (laughs) It's just that most of us are called softly. We are all called. Even if it's not with a big event or super obvious. So, to get back to our Western... The Holy Spirit says, I have called them. Now what? Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Fasting and praying again. They understood how important this is. This is the very first missions trip for Jesus Christ. And they knew their job was to change the world. This is the first church to sponsor missionaries to a foreign land. Well, okay, not real foreign. But still, it's somewhere else. (laughs) And they're, they're doing the very last thing Jesus said to do. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as many people have said, when it comes to spreading the gospel, you can go or you can send or you can disobey. <laughs> the church in Antioch decided to obey. And we, too, have obeyed. By helping to send the Millers and the Harmanings, we're part of changing the world by sending every month money to our own Converge Northwest. And maybe we've obeyed by going ourselves, even if it is just to the South Beach. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Seleucia was the seaport for Antioch. But why sail to Cyprus? Well, let's say that another way. How did they know that was where the Holy Spirit wanted them? Maybe the same way we would know, assuming we are spiritually mature. It's close. Barnabas was from there, so he could act as a guide, as well as introduce Saul to the people he knew. 
that could be it. Maybe these guys were miraculously called by the Holy Spirit, but wisely chose the place by circumstances, knowing that was where the same Holy Spirit wanted them. And God regularly speaks to us in circumstances. If your car <clears throat> breaks down in the middle of nowhere, remember that God called Philip to the middle of nowhere on purpose. Maybe he's calling you to be just where you are. I mean, look around. He might have some work for you to do. If you have to live someplace or work someplace that just seems so unlikely, remember that you are exactly where God wants you to be. Are we spiritually mature? Okay, let's quit whining about where we are and look around for the work the Holy Spirit has for us to do. I'll tell on myself, one time I was working on somebody's plumbing down in some hole <laughs> under a house. My feet forced up here and I, my hands up reaching to the pipes, water running down my arms and getting all frustrated because I was stuck working in this mess. And then somehow or another, as thick-headed as I am, the Spirit reminded me that I was right where God wanted me to be, in a mud pile under a house. <laughs> it took a few moments, but then I, I did start to laugh and you have to admit, it's a pretty funny picture when you start to think about it. <laughs> I think it was our son Aaron. He was working in some other part of the house. Hey, Dad, are you all right down there? <laughs> his dad laughing his head off underneath the house. I guess he was a little concerned. Anyway, we really are right where God wants us to be. And there's no point in complaining about it. It won't do any good anyway. You might as well figure out why God has you there. And... Go to the work that he has for you to do. Okay, back to our white-hatted heroes. They're back in the saddle and pulling into Dodge. Okay, they got on a ship and set sail. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Hey, wait a minute. You're thinking, didn't you say last time that we were in Acts that all the Jews who were going to believe, become believers already were believers? Then why did they go to the synagogues? Well, okay, I wasn't completely thorough when I said that. Most all the Jews in Judea who were going to believe already had. News didn't travel anywhere near as fast as it does now. So in each city, the early church missionaries went to, they had to go through the same process that the church in Jerusalem did at the beginning. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. I mean, think of it. If the Jews from the synagogues converted they would all be well taught in the scriptures. And so they would be the fastest to train as pastors for the local church. Also, the Gentiles, who were God-fearers, would be at the synagogues. And they'd have the personal contacts in the Gentile community that Paul wanted to reach. And they could work through the training quickly as well. As we work through the rest of Acts, you'll find that this is Paul's standard operating procedure when he enters a new town. Good. So they start at the east end of the island and they ride their trusty steeds all through all the towns as they make their way to the west. Okay, they walk, but we want it to sound like a western and it doesn't work if you just say they walk. So. <laughs> and now, cue the guy with the black hat. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Magician. The word translated magician could go either way. It's the same word, for instance, as is used to describe the wise men who followed the star. Good guys. But it was a word commonly used to describe hucksters as well, you know, snake oil salesmen, shysters. Now we know this guy is wearing a black hat because Luke tells us he's a false prophet. But the people around him didn't know. And he calls himself Bar-Jesus, which means son of the Savior. <laughs> now here's my question. Why would Sergius, an intelligent man who had authority over the whole island, keep this guy around? Well, it turns out Romans tended to be pretty superstitious. Keeping a guy on retainer who might know something of the future could prove helpful. You should know that Romans also thought Jews had some sort of inside track on magic. <laughs> Strange. And besides, there were a lot of Jews on Cyprus, so it might be a good move to have one on staff. Probably Sergius Paulus didn't know Bar-Jesus was acting against the Mosaic Law and would be, in consequence, an outcast of the Jews. And you notice our proconsul summoned Barnabas and Saul to hear the word of God. This guy's seeking. So he started in the wrong place. You give him a break. He's still looking. He's still got his gray hat on. But Elamis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Is anyone surprised? Of course the guys in the black hats are going to try to keep the guys in the white hats from talking to the townsfolk, for sure the mayor. If people learn the truth, they're not going to be taken in by their lies, and there goes their hope of riches. So Bargesus opposes Barnabas and Saul, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, wait. You better stop. Take a breath. We'll scamper down a rabbit trail for a moment. Luke's original audience has not heard the name Paul until now. They've only heard Luke call him by his Hebrew name, Saul. Chances are they'd all heard of Saul by his Roman name, Paul. But to this point in the story, they didn't know who Luke was talking about. For more background info, there were a great number of Jewish people at the time that Luke wrote this history who hated Paul and had done all they could to sully his reputation. Luke may have been withholding Saul's Roman name until this point in order to ensure his audience would grasp Paul's godly character before they began to think about him as that guy everyone talked about, that everyone told lies about. And after all, how would they know whether they were lies or not? And from now on, since he's let the cat out of the bag, <laughs> Luke uses Paul's Latin or Roman name. Paul began to use his Latin name because his focus is now on the Gentiles, who would feel more comfortable with that name than his Hebrew name. And, by the way, the name Paul is actually a modern, shortened version of the Roman name, Paulus. That's right, the same as a procurator. It's a sort of family name. So you can kind of imagine the conversation he had with the procurator. Hey, you have the same last name I do. Do you know X? Are you related to X? Paul was probably a lot brighter than any of us, and it would only take a moment for us to recognize how much easier it would be to talk to a Roman when he used a Roman name. Paul probably 
didn't even have to think. You know, we really ought to try to use words familiar to those God brings into our world as much as we can. Anyway. Okay. Back to our Western in the Middle East for the big shootout. Elimus opposed him, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking intently at him, and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy! Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Whoa! (laughs) Paul's blazing away with his (laughs) six-shooter. Bar-Jesus called himself the son of the Savior. Paul calls him the son of the devil. He wasn't trying to do right. The Greek word for deceit originally meant the bait that a person puts in a trap. How's that for a description to this guy? Another application moment. I wonder if maybe we aren't too soft on evil. We don't want to call evil, evil. Maybe we ought to at least consider calling people what they are. To their faces, not not behind their backs. (laughs) Don't do that. Here's a scary thought. Maybe our problem is we don't care enough about those they are trying to deceive to live through the embarrassment of truthfulness. Maybe we don't care enough about those who are deceiving to point out their sin. Why get better if you don't know you're bad? Hmm. Illimus was distorting the truth of God. Were we willing to step in and correct people who do that? Do we care enough about the truth to stand up and defend it? Well, whatever we do, we better make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit when we do it because once you open your mouth, (laughs) you really have to do something about it. Paul did, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Okay. It's been more than a decade since Paul's conversion. But don't you think that he, in this first recorded miracle of his, remembered when he was blind for a time? We don't know what ultimately happens in Bar-Jesus' life, but he does get the same chance for reflection that Paul got himself. Because miracles are not normative today, and Paul was, after all, an apostle, We really don't know how this worked. Did the Holy Spirit tell Paul that he was about to do what he was about to do so Paul could declare it before it happened? Was Paul given the right and power to choose blindness himself? I kind of think the latter. But we really have no way of knowing. Still, Paul was angry with the distortion of the truth that was happening. But did Elimus do as much bad as Paul did before his conversion? (laughs) And there's this. I think Paul wanted to give Bar-Jesus the best chance he knew to give him. It worked for him. It might for Elimus. Bad things sometimes happen to drive us towards good. I'm sure God would rather use good things, but the truth is many people don't respond unless something catastrophic happens. The limitation is in us. At the least, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gave Bar-Jesus the same chance he had to get it right. Remember, he did say that blindness would be only for a time. Maybe we have to be harsh with people sometimes to be good to them. 
but it needs to be for their good and only for a time. And if they don't learn it by then, they're not going to get it that way anyway. But even if they don't get it, those around them might. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. On the entire island of Cyprus, could there be a more influential person than Sergius Paulus? And did you get that the miracle wasn't the main driving factor? He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the resurrection of Jesus. He was astonished that Jesus is the Son of God. It was the truth that amazed him. This miracle just released him from feeling that he had to believe the lies. And I know, I said it before, I just did. But we really do have to stand for the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything stands and falls on that fact. And when people understand that it is the truth, they will be able to believe the rest of the good news. All right. There's one other part of the story that I'd like you to notice before we get out of here. It's in the next verse, which is the beginning of the next story in Paul's first missionary journey. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. Up until now, it's been Barnabas and Saul. Mr. B goes to get him in Tarsus. Barnabas brings him back to Antioch to train the people. Then he brings him to his home island. But something in this episode changes Paul. For the first time, he begins to take charge, to lead as an apostle should. Before this, he let others determine pretty much what he was going to do, where he was going to go. And was it some sort of false modesty? Did he think Barnabas was better suited to lead? Maybe just afraid. Whatever the case, it was not God's plan, at least anymore. From this point on, Paul does what God intended him to do. I think sometimes we are afraid to take on what God intends for us to do. Or maybe Satan convinces us we aren't capable, that we will mess up. You did last time. Why set yourself up for failure again? Someone else will do a better job. Don't be a fool. But we are God's children. We have the white hats. <laughs> We're the good guys. And maybe we need to ride to the rescue to stand for what is right. You know why people love the old westerns? Have you noticed that even young people, kids, want life to be like it was before any of us were born? They want to go back to that simpler time when evil was clearly evil, when good was clearly good, when people fought for what was right and wouldn't let evil stand. People are tired of the modern view that nobody is really evil, nobody's really good. In fact, there is no good and evil. We want to, but we can't go back. With God, all things move forward. As Paul wrote to Timothy, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. But we have to go 
through this time. You cannot avoid it. Are you worried? Don't be. Those black hat people might do all those horrible things, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. As John later wrote, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And when we believed, God gave us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Truth is, there really is only one white hat. <laughs> the original black hat guy, Satan, drug every human being down. And the truth is, we all started with black hats. But this is no Western. And Jesus is the one real thing. And he will clothe us in pure white garments. He will make us clean. If we believe Jesus is true God and true man, we will have eternal life. We will overcome the world. Our faith will give us victory. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This we understand. And we know that the one who is true and his son Jesus Christ, he is true God and eternal life. Trust in him. Believe in him and you will have eternal life. And if you have a hat there, it'll be white. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you can look at your scripture. It may be kind of a fun way, but in truth, one day, one day we'll have pure white garments. We will be perfected. Not because of who we are, but because of who your son is and what he did for us. You will make us perfectly pure. I can't even imagine it, but it will be. I know it will be because you told me. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your gifts to us. Thank you that, well, I guess, thank you that we have a chance to face evil. <laughs> uh, you put us here. It must be for a purpose. Help us to do our part in calling evil evil, and pointing out good when we see it. Help us to do the best we can. First, for those that are part of our family. They're going to spend eternity with us in a beautiful, wonderful, eternal life. But also for those that are around us that haven't yet found you. Help us to lead them to yourself. Where they too can have eternal life. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. We hope that you've enjoyed this message, first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. If you'd like to support us so we can do more, well, you'll have to work at it. We have no one-click button for giving on our webpage, southbeachhope.org. We are a tiny church in a small town and simply cannot afford either money or time to set up such a thing. 
But at least with our modern technology and with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and anyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.